Weekly Signals, every Tuesday morning from 8 to 9 a.m. Join me, Mike Casper, and Nathan Callahan for the best in reality-based radio. That's Weekly Signals. Check out the website at weeklysignals.com. The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. To find out more about this talk show or other talk shows broadcasting on KUCI, log on to our website at KUCI.org or check out the latest program guide. Good evening. You're listening to KUCI at 88.9 FM in Irvine and online at KUCI.org. Welcome to Privacy Piracy. I'm Lloyd. I'm the show's engineer, and your host is Mari Frank. Mari's a local attorney and certified information privacy professional. She's the author of several books, including Safeguard Your Identity and From Victim to Victor, a step-by-step guide for ending the nightmare of identity theft. She sits as an advisor to the State of California Office of Privacy Protection, and she's a sheriff reserve here in Orange County. She's testified many times in Congress and the California legislature on privacy and identity theft issues, and you may have seen her on TV on Dateline, 48 Hours, NBC, ABC, CNN, O'Reilly, Geraldo, Montel, a lot of other shows. And uh, she did her own 90-minute PBS special last year called Protecting Yourself in the Information Age. To learn more about this radio show and our great guests, please visit KUCI.org slash privacy piracy. Good evening, Mari. Good evening. Well, Lloyd, you have heard me talk many times about Privacy Journal, which is a very wonderful newsletter that I get every month and I read all the time and it keeps me up to date on all the things that are happening in privacy. And you may remember that I went to Providence, Rhode Island, and I got to meet Robert Ellis Smith. And we've also had him on our show. Additionally, I even interviewed him back in 1997 when I was writing my book, From Victim to Victor, A Step-by-Step Guide to Ending the Nightmare of Identity Theft, because I wanted to speak with a a wonderful expert on privacy, and Robert Ellis Smith is one of my privacy heroes, and I'm thrilled that he's joining us again. It's been about three years since he's been on this show, and so we're thrilled to have him back. For those of you who didn't hear our interview with him before and want to know a little bit about him, I'm going to tell you his background. He is a journalist who uses his training as an attorney to report on the individual's right to privacy. Since 1974, he has published Privacy Journal, a monthly newsletter on privacy in the information age and the computer age, and it's based in beautiful Providence, Rhode Island. Bob Smith is a frequent speaker, writer, congressional witness, and he's also a court expert witness on privacy issues, and he has compiled a clearinghouse of information on various types of privacy issues, including computer data banks, credit and medical records, the internet, electronic surveillance, the law of privacy, and physical and psychological privacy. Bob is the author of Ben Franklin's website, Privacy and Curiosity from Plymouth Rock to the Internet, which is the first and only published history of privacy in the United States. He's also the author of Our Vanishing Privacy and also The Law of Privacy Explained, Privacy, How to Protect What's Left of It, and Work Rights, a book describing individual rights in the workplace, and The Big Brother of Lists. Privacy Journal also publishes a compilation of state and federal privacy laws, 
Celebrities and Privacy and War Stories, which is a collection of anecdotes on privacy invasions. The New York Times says Robert Ellis Smith sounds the alarm about maintaining freedom and privacy in the computer age, and they call him a principled critic. He's also been quoted in the Times Magazine and U.S. News and World Report, and he's been asked to write the definitive statement on privacy in the last few editions of the World Book Encyclopedia. He's appeared on all three networks, morning news programs, as well as Face the Nation, Nightline, and All Things Considered. He's been a regular commentator on Marketplace on American Public Radio, and he's been on our show before, and we're so thrilled to have him back. Of course, you can find out a lot more about him if you go to the website privacyjournal.net. Thank you, Bob. We're so thrilled that you're joining us from the East Coast. Why, thank you very much. It's good to join you again, Marie. Well, uh, you know you're one of my... On, on your show. It's still going strong. Yeah, it's Great. four years now. Unbelievable, isn't it? Wonderful. And you were one of our very first guests, and I've been wanting to get you back, so I am thrilled I'm going to have to get you back every year. It's Great. Just, you're such a busy guy. Yeah. You know, I first learned about you from my dear friend, and I know she's a friend of yours, too, Beth Givens, who's the director of the Privacy Rights Clearinghouse. And because of her, I've been subscribing to your newsletter since 1996. But I understand you've been publishing now for 35 years. How is it that you were one of those first pioneers in privacy? Well, it's a little hard to believe that uh, that you could do something for 35 years. But uh, privacy keeps coming back in new forms. So, uh, And the new technology is always exciting and interesting to learn about. So... Most of what I covered back in the 70s, you know, was really changed radically. Anyway, I was a newspaper reporter, and then I went into work in the government, and uh, I was interested in the tension between uh, free press and privacy. And I wanted to know whether it was possible to do a newspaper reporter's job without invading people's privacy unnecessarily, and a lot of court cases about that, and that whole tension interested me. And when I got into it uh, then back in 1974, I figured out pretty quickly that it was computer data banks that everybody was concerned about. So I had to learn about technology pretty quickly. I had some pretty good people help me along the way, especially IBM. They actually had a program back then to uh, bring in reporters for a week and teach them about the new technology. So that was very helpful. Hmm. So, uh, you know, you were talking about how it's changed. How has privacy really evolved since you started publishing Privacy Journal? Well, the information has become a lot more centralized, and uh, the databases allow for keeping virtually any kind of information. Cost is no longer a factor. In those days when I first got into this, it was expensive to keep uh, paper records, and there would be fires and floods, and uh, you had to have lots of precautions to take care of that. Now, uh, with computers, I think we have removed any cost deterrent. So when in doubt, you gather the information. And then about in 19, oh, the late 80s came uh, the decentralization of computers and the introduction of personal computers. People in my business never really thought that there'd be computing power in the hands of individuals. And it became a great trend. It was very helpful. Uh, although what it meant was that uh, all the precautions that had been put in place to protect us in large computer systems uh, really were irrelevant when you could download that information to a personal computer and uh, uh, employees could keep the information at home and the like. So uh, the information really went much further beyond the control of the individual. 
And then we didn't anticipate the Internet uh, or electronic mail. Uh, it's just incredible the amount of information that is retrievable by the Internet. We all know that. A lot of that information is personal, though. It involves uh, other people, and it's beyond our real need to know some of the information that's available. It just awes me each time I go on the Internet, and usually by accident, but sometimes when I'm looking for information about people, I, I just stumble across all sorts of personal information that really ought not to be uh, in an online system, I think. Right, um, and sometimes it's not even correct. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Uh, that that has been one of the problems, that uh, the information was just put online without any regard to whether it was correct or not. Right. So what do you see as the most critical privacy issues that are facing us in the year 2009? Well, I think now the uh, big issue is not so much that information is stored somewhere in a dormant database or a static database, but that information about our whereabouts is now so readily available, whether it's uh, when, when we use an ATM machine or we use a GPS system in our automobiles or we use a cell phone uh, that does keep track of our whereabouts within maybe a four or five uh, block range. Um, the uh, camera surveillance that's everywhere in our communities, there's just a lot of, of technology now that's devoted to keeping track of where we are. And uh, I'm not sure some of the old principles that were developed help us very much uh, in this new era. And I know that there have not been very good privacy protections put in place uh, before a lot of this technology is put in place. There are no rules and regulations, for instance, on camera surveillance and uh, tracking people by cell phone and the like. Yeah, it's the Wild West of privacy, isn't it? It really, <laughs> it really is. Let's let's talk a little bit about the concerns that, that you had with privacy under the Bush administration. There were a lot of things that happened that I know you were concerned about that was in your your newsletter, and, of course, all of us were concerned about yeah, I think the main one is the uh, what I call extra legal. Many people would call it illegal uh, <laughs> uh, installation of wiretaps uh, to monitor conversations that involved foreign nationals uh, to gather foreign intelligence. As most people know, there already was a protocol in place. We had a pretty good law in place called FISA, the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act, that uh, required uh, the government when they wanted to. Uh, uh, install wiretaps with regard to foreign intelligence. We didn't require them to uh, have a full-dress uh, probable cause showing because uh, we, we uh, that's too high a standard. We wouldn't expect that the government would have that much information when they wanted to uh, monitor one of those calls. All they really needed was just a, a suspicion that uh, they might be able to uh, find some information that would be of help. So all we required is that they went to the secret court and they got pretty much rubber stamp approval. And, and, and they had, what, 72 hours to, to get the warrant to do this. So That's that they, right. Yeah. That's right. And there was an, a special emergency procedure as well. They could get it uh, overnight if they wanted to. They could get it by fax. So it, it, no administration prior to that found that a deterrent. And it's just too bad that the Bush people decided to ignore that law and install the taps without any... Uh, uh, permissions at all. Now, the the reason it's important is it, it leaves a paper trail for people later on to see whether the government has abused that authority or not. And uh, unfortunately, the Congress last July uh, uh, approved that, and it's now part of the law that the president need not go through that former FISA uh, procedure. How has the war on terrorism been used to put concerns about privacy in you know on the back burner? Well, I think it's been used to threaten uh, privacy advocates and just 
citizens in good standing who appreciate the government keeping its distance. Uh, we have been told it's unpatriotic even to inquire into the Patriot Act and exactly what it what it requires. We have been told it's unpatriotic just to question some of the effectiveness of a lot of this technology that we know through our studies uh, doesn't work the way it's supposed to. But governmental bodies have spent a lot of money on it and, and given blind allegiance that it, that it will work. For instance, the whole idea that you can compare a photograph of somebody to uh, uh, facial features in a computer database uh, is a very faulty technology, yet uh, we're using it at airports and relying on it uh, far too much. It's, it's called biometrics. So the, the war on terror has been used to create, I'm afraid, what is best described as security theater. And I think people in the government will admit it, that the whole idea is to show that the government at least is doing something. And the idea is that people will feel more secure if, if something's being done. And they rarely um, inquire into it to think and stop and say, wait a minute, is this really as effective as they claim it is? So that's been the great tragedy of all of this, that uh, we have abandoned uh, the traditional skepticism we've given to technology, and we, I think, have abandoned the respect we should give to those constitutional rights that we have tried to protect over the last 200 years. Yeah, I know it's been really scary for people who I know, who I'm sure you know as well, and have heard many people complain about the watch lists and not being able to get on a plane or being hassled for hours and missing their plane because they're on a watch list and they can't even find out anything about it or why they're on it or how to get off of it. So that's part of this whole privacy security <laughs> issue as well. Yeah. Yeah. The Department of Homeland Security just before the election issued new regulations under this, but they they admitted they don't have any means for assuring the accuracy of the information. There are about a million people on that watch list, and I think we know there are not a million terrorism suspects in the world. Uh, it, it, it's got very outmoded information in it. And if your name happens to be fairly common, like Edward Kennedy, you're going to be stopped at the airport for right. more scrutiny. And uh, uh, that the watch list should be discreet. It should be uh, kept up to date constantly. It, it should be uh, a manageable level so that it means something. But when you're talking about a million names, you know that it's security theater. That's what it is. Right. You know, I had mentioned this before on our show that we have a neighbor who uh, is uh, 15 years old who's on the watch list. Really? And, and he has an Irish name that apparently is the same as an Irish terrorist, you know, IRA. And uh, he can't get off the watch list. Every time he travels for hockey, he, uh, he they lose his baggage. Uh, he can't get on the plane for hours. And they've been trying to get him off that watch list forever. But they that's what they told him, that his name was the same or similar to someone who was from the IRA. <laughs> it's crazy. Yep. Not only does it invade privacy, but it's bad security as well. It is bad security when you're when you're taking time with someone who is innocent. Then you don't have time to go after the people who might really be a threat. Right. You know. Then we also had somebody on our show to talk about the no buy list, which was when you're <laughs> certain things. If your name came up in from the Department of Treasury, that you there were certain things you couldn't buy, like a house or a car. That 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 people um, who were on this supposed no buy list that would come up from the credit reporting agencies would be precluded from buying big, you know, big items, big ticket items. They couldn't get credit for it. So again, how do you get off of something like that? That's been a a real problem as well. Well, we thought in the 80s we were developing uh, systems and principles for 
keeping these inf- these records accurate. And the, the tools are there, but they were ignored in this post-9-11 panic. So what do you think about the Obama transition effort for privacy? Is there is there any effort? Well, it's been quite interesting, yeah. First of all, the man who heads the transition effort, Tom uh, uh, John Podesta, uh, in Washington, who was formerly chief of staff to President Clinton, was very much involved in privacy activity before he took the job in the Clinton White House. He met regularly with us in Washington and helped us a lot with uh, uh, political uh, uh, planning and strategy with regard to privacy. I I would call him a a true believer. So we've had access, and that's very important. The people in the privacy business are able to get, get a sympathetic ear. There have been a couple of appointments that have been interesting. I think the governor of Arizona, Janet Napolitano, is a very interesting choice for Department of Homeland Security in that uh, she's been very critical of this so-called real ID scheme that uh, is supposed to create a uniform state driver's license, but in the process is going to require lots more information about people, useless information, lots more lines at the motor vehicle departments, and lots more expense. And privacy people have identified that as one of the things they want to try to get totally revamped. She also, just incidentally, has been opposed to uh, building a fence along the border, too. So that's a very interesting choice. Uh, she's the attorney, was the attorney general and now is the governor of Arizona. And then uh, Representative Ray LaHood of Illinois is another interesting choice. I think he's the only Republican uh, in the cabinet. Um, he's won the applause of uh, a lot of people in Washington because he's was bold in trying to limit some of this profiling that has been used uh, in airport screening. And he's been critical and he's been observant of the uh, no-fly list and trying to and the watch list and trying to work out the kinks in that. So he's, of all things, been named uh, uh, Secretary of Transportation. So we may well see some real change there. Uh, beyond that, the most those are the two most sensitive positions, I think, in in the world of privacy and surveillance. Beyond that comes the Department of Justice. Eric Holder is uh, certainly very well qualified to be Attorney General. I wouldn't say that he's a a privacy fan, but uh, I think most people in Washington who are on the privacy side uh, view him as very competent and a man who listens and a man who's not going to put up with a lot of nonsense in terms of phony security devices and depriving people of their rights in the name of, of security. So I think that uh, even though he has been a very vigorous law enforcement activist, which he should be as attorney general, uh, mm-hmm. yeah. the privacy people feel that he's somebody that we can talk to. We're speaking with Robert Ellis Smith, who is a journalist who uses his vast training as an attorney to report on the individual's right to privacy. And since 1974, he has published Privacy Journal, a wonderful monthly newsletter on privacy in the computer age. He's based in Providence, Rhode Island, and I've been getting his newsletter for many, many years and find that it is very important to read every month. So let's go back to talk about some important guidelines. I know in, in my rec- one of my recent newsletters, you have a whole set of guidelines that should be on the privacy agenda for the new administration. Can you share some of those with us? Yeah, it's kind of a checklist, I think. Uh, one is uh, in naming the cabinet members, I, I didn't mention that the Federal Trade Commission in the last 10 years is, has kind of become the focus of all privacy activity. You well know that it is the focal point for identity theft and trying to get at that. It has jurisdiction over credit bureaus. It has jurisdiction over the do not call list. It has jurisdiction over uh, Internet uh, privacy. 
but even beyond that, it is sort of looked to as the privacy focal point when they don't have the expertise on a lot of some of these non-commercial privacy issues that we've been talking about. So whoever becomes chair of the Federal Trade Commission is going to have a huge impact in privacy policy. And we're looking now as to whether uh, that person will, uh, as the Bush administration appointees did, uh, simply say that uh, industry can self-regulate itself. Oh, uh, that'll be extremely disappointing. <laughs> I know you've been through that one. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely, they can't. I mean, we've seen it over and over again with the data brokers. They cannot regulate themselves. <laughs> right. And so we're we're concerned uh, about that, but uh, we're just hopeful that people will recognize that the Federal Trade Commission now has a huge role in all of this, and we have to sit up and pay notice to whoever are going to be members of that commission. Right, because I, I, I saw a, a vast difference between the Clinton administration and the Bush administration in terms of the ability of the Federal Trade Commission to actually do some things to hold companies accountable. And right. and I think that if we can see some changes in that, that would be great. And some of the people who I'm actually friends with at the Federal Trade Commission felt that their hands were tied in many places. Yeah. So. Um, too bad. It, would, it was a commission in the last eight years that really regarded uh, businesses as their own regulator. Right. So let's go back to some more of the uh, the privacy agenda besides the Federal Trade Commission. Yeah. Well, I think there ought to be an objective study about identity documents in the government and the trend towards a national ID card. Uh, why not have the federal government for the very first time study this totally and look at the negative impact, look at the positive impact, and let's decide whether it's the sort of thing we want to do. So far, all of the decisions made to push us closer to a national identity card have been done just in small, private, bureaucratic, uh, discreet uh, actions. And, and nobody, including the Congress, has really looked at this in its totality. I think I mentioned earlier biometric uh, uh, technology. That's where you take somebody's uh, personal attributes, whether their voice or their fingerprint or their bone structure or their facial geometry, and you compare it to the identical features in a computer database where the information's been stored previously. Well, does it work? Well, I think the government ought to study this and find out objectively whether biometrics um, really works the way, way it should. I think the government ought to take another look at uh, the Real ID Act and the regulations that were issued under that act. The Department of Homeland Security did them uh, half-heartedly. They really didn't want to pass them before they left town, but uh, they they were compelled to. So I think we ought to go back to drawing boards with those regulations and do it right from the start. I think especially, too, and, and especially with this president who is so effective, I think, in motivating and communicating with the American people, that we uh, get people to appreciate uh, their privacy and how fragile it is. And uh, we uh, insist that the uh, security agencies let us know now before any future attacks what it is that they need, what tools do they lack, what are the laws that they think uh, make life difficult for doing their investigations. And then let's try to uh, uh, give them uh, the authorities they need uh, and still protect privacy. I'm persuaded, lots of my colleagues are persuaded that this can be done. But what we want to prevent is, in the event of another attack, we are presented with some wish list two days after the attack and we're told that we better enact it and not read it because the crisis is too great. Uh, 
Right, like they did with the the whole Patriot Act. <laughs> That's what was done with the Patriot Act. And right. So we should anticipate there may well be another attack, but let's get out on the table right now. What are the flaws that uh, the security people see in the authority they have? Well, you know, the 9-11 Commission has given um, a, a lot of thought to that, and a lot of that has been disregarded. Yes, it has. And I think that's unfortunate because that, that would give us a great insight into what we need to do for the future and what we need to do to protect things. Even the the Government Accounting Office has uh, made numerous suggestions with regard to security, and those have been discarded or just ignored or just not implemented. So, uh, right, that's true. Yeah. yeah. You know, when you're talking about the new administration, I think about how uh, Obama has had uh, issues with privacy with regard to his passport information, um, his cell phone records, and um, even his medical records. Right, all of those, you're right. I think the, <laughs> so you uh, would think that if that happened to somebody, this is the time to get him, like, do you like this happening to you? <laughs> right. The, um, the passport records of all the candidates during the primaries were, uh, were compromised. And, exactly. Uh, people intruded into them. And uh, uh, there were original reports after the election that Obama had to give up uh, his BlackBerry and his email because of a lack of security. I hope that there can be alternatives found for that because... I was very encouraged that he used that new technology, and I hope he's able to find a way to do it and keep keep security. I think we're going to have to, and you know, he has been a, um, a as a candidate. He he used the media, didn't he? He used all of the new technology, using the internet more than anyone else has used, and he's been using you know all of the other types of media as well. So you would think that because he's of this younger generation and growing up with computers, that he. There, maybe he will, maybe with your help, Robert, um, he'll be able to uh, influence Congress to to make things more secure, but still be able to use the technology. Because we're going to, I mean, we can't put the technology back in the box. No, that's true. We can't. And the president of all people should have the use of that uh, instant messaging and the like. He really should. Right, right. I would hate to think that he's going to have to revert to pen and pencil, which in many ways is, is a whole lot less secure now than exactly. uh, the electronic communication. I think he's accomplished an awful lot, in part because they know how to use technology for the transmission of information and the making of decisions. Right. So we talked about some of the guidelines that you have suggested for him. What about Congress? You know, I mean, there, in my view, I think we need some legislation. I mean, I don't like just tons and tons of legislation for no reason, but for example, in my view, it, we sure could use some oversight for the information broker industry. What about Congress? What what kind of legislation do you think would be helpful to protect privacy in 2009? Well, I think you you know uh, my pet project, which I uh, I know you know intimately, which is uh, prevent credit bureaus from using social security numbers in order to match records. Right. If we did that, we could cut down an awful lot of the uh, commercial information theft that we have, identity theft that we have. Secondly, I think that Congress should take a full view at some of Google's new products and figure out what their impact is on privacy and whether Google has privacy protocols in place. I'm speaking of Street View and Gmail and uh, the retention of, of the identity of searches that people make for uh, several months. Uh, Congress should take a full look at that. I think Google has a 
huge impact on our lives, most of it very positive, but um, it's more than a search engine. It's a whole lot more. It It has changed the way we interact with each other, and it's changed the way we relate to the Internet, and Congress should study all of that, and it's... Uh, impact on on privacy. What are the biggest concerns? You know, I always laugh about this with my son because my son, Brian, who is getting his MBA right now, um, worked last summer at Google in New York City in the marketing department (laughs) as an intern, and he absolutely loved it. And of course, we argued about a lot of these privacy issues, which he told me that I was wrong, of course. But um, let's talk about that, because here we are sitting on the campus of the University of California. We have all these young people, which we also have many people driving by in Newport Beach and Irvine who are business people. But here we are on the campus, and they are so into technology and they Google everything, right? I mean, that Google to Google now is actually a verb besides being a noun, right. right? So let's talk about these things that are of concern to privacy advocates with Google. Well, first is you're, you are not what you search. I search for lots of things. I did it today in just the course of my business that I don't believe in. I, I don't uh, subscribe to the ideas, but I, as an inquiring journalist or as a researcher or in many, many other jobs, I and others uh, search on the Internet to find the information we need. That doesn't mean that uh, that's who we are. And so I think uh, the more we can protect the anonymity of searches online, the better. Secondly, Google has a Gmail product that is a free uh, email service that they have. But in exchange for getting it free, people have to agree that uh, the content of their email will be scrutinized and will be harvested so that various keywords that appear in their correspondence will be used to generate advertising uh, to them. And uh, I don't think people know the consequences of doing that. I also am worried about Street View. That's Google's product where they, um, in most major cities now, they have photographs of every single building uh, in the place. Yes. And uh, I do not agree with those who say that anything that appears in public is not protected by privacy uh, it is. It's something I paid for. It has my personality on it. It may have little hints of who I am around there. It To, to have it publicly displayed without my consent certainly uh, makes me more vulnerable to a break-in, I believe, and to uh, unscrupulous people uh, being able to, to use me and take advantage of me. So, And I don't see the great utility of the product yet. I'm still waiting for somebody to tell me some great uh, application that it has to make it available to anybody worldwide, the picture of somebody else's house. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I can understand if, and, and I get, it gets back to the issue of whether it's your consent. So if I wanted to give consent, if I put my house on the market and I wanted to give consent to see it and where it is, that would be my choice. Or if I had a, a bed and breakfast and I wanted to have that easy to find, uh, maybe it's on a back road, and I wanted to do that. That's one thing. You know, in fact, I used the Google <laughs> to find this hotel that we went to um, over the holidays, and I wanted to find it, and I could actually actually look like I was driving up to it. So I can understand that. But I would not want, and I'm sure it is. I mean, I, you can opt out of it, though, can't you, Robert? Can well, you, you can, but the, the link that I tried to activate yesterday doesn't work, and I always find that in the early days that a lot of these companies will say you can opt out, and they have some a link, and then the link is mysteriously inoperative. So I'm still going to deal with Google on that. If, if it's operative, I have no complaint. If a, a homeowner is able to simply remove that 
image. That's fine with me. Or I even like, I like your other idea better is that you can opt into it, that right. if you want to do it, because so many people, you're much more savvy about privacy than, you know, 99% of the people in this country. And so most people won't even necessarily know that they're in there. And, oh, that's true. They and won't. so they won't know. So if it's Including opt in, a lot of the kids who think they know everything about the Internet, I'm sure they don't even know that. I know there's so many things that they don't know, right. they, and they don't know the ramifications. Or they say, well, you know, if I don't have anything to hide, what do I care? You know, but they don't realize the, the insidious side of things and how people can use it to hurt you or whatever. For sure. And we know that college admissions officers and employment officers look through YouTube and uh, my, uh, MySpace and Facebook and all the rest. And if you're pictured there looking idiotic with a beer in your hand. Uh, that may seem like innocent fun, but it could well take away a job, too. Yes, exactly. In fact, I know that it has. Right. It literally has for people who we've talked to. We're speaking with Robert Ellis Smith, who I am so privileged to know for many years now. He's a journalist and an attorney, and he is the publisher of Privacy Journal, which is what, 35 years it's been in existence. It's a wonderful newsletter. You can learn a lot more about him, his books, his newsletter. Subscribe to it at privacyjournal.net. Okay, so let's see. Let's get back to what other legislation do you think should be um, introduced this year? And and who might be a good person or good persons, uh, senators, congressmen, to introduce such legislation? Yeah, well, we used to have lots of friends, as you know, in the Congress. I'm not sure that we do now. It's kind of passed us by. But we need legislation, I think, addressing the the problem of children, uh, perhaps social networking sites, too, uh, to make sure that they're, they're protected online. Um, I think we need legislation to get at this manipulative advertising that uh, is going on online where uh, uh, various um, intermediaries, including Google, take information uh, – that's online, uh, whether it's search information or email or whatever, and they use it to uh, manipulate us to buy products and, and the like. When that's used with regard to children, it's particularly nefarious, I think, and, and it is being used. Uh, there is lots of information gathering about children that, in fact, is illegal, but there are a couple of loopholes uh, that allow this to go on, and I think Congress should should address that to make sure children are not commercially exploited online even more any more than uh, they are sexually exploited. So that's another area we could look at. As I say, reforming uh, the Real ID program is another, uh, I think, not legislation, but at least hearings on national ID cards to really find out whether that's the way we want to go and what are the good and bad ramifications of that would be very helpful. A few years ago, I testified on S-500, which was introduced by Senator from Florida, Bill Nelson. Yes. And that that was um, it was interesting because I was actually testifying alongside Jennifer Barrett from Axiom, which we'll talk about in a minute. But that bill was trying to make the data brokers accountable like the credit reporting agencies, that there had to be specific ways that you could correct the data and that you'd have a right to not only see it, but correct it and do other things that were to protect you because most people don't know about all of these data brokers like Joyce Point, LexisNexis, Axiom, and the others. 
What do you think about legislation to have greater oversight over the data brokers? Well, my view is that the larger ones, like ChoicePoint and LexisNexis, are already covered by the Fair Credit Reporting Act, um, and uh, that ought to be made perfectly clear by the Federal Trade Commission. There are certain activities that those brokers do that that is outside of the Fair Credit Reporting Act, and I agree totally with you that the act should be amended to to include those. Uh, essentially, the Fair Credit Reporting Act includes anybody who takes a fee for gathering information that's going to be used to determine whether you get a job or credit or insurance or an apartment or some other similar uh, consumer uh, transaction like that. And it should be expanded because, uh, in fact, uh, uh, Choice Point, for instance, does work for the security agencies, and they can deny you a security clearance, and they can get you arrested and get, get uh, bail denied if you turn up in one of their databases. So we definitely need to amend the law to make sure that those large database companies are included. And then we go to these mom-and-pop uh, data brokers, yeah. which you're familiar with. <laughs> yeah. They're very All slippery. the resellers, yes. yeah. Yeah, they're very slippery, and, and we don't know much about them. And the law has to be clear that these people uh, are covered by uh, a, a, a law that um, gives people the right to know what information is collected about them and to correct it if it's wrong and to clearly spell out when the information can be used and when it can't. But we've got to have some law that requires these organizations to reach some standard of, of accuracy. Yes. And uh, we don't have that right now. Uh, so I, I think it's important for people to remember that databases come in several different varieties. There are the large companies that operate much like credit bureaus, and there are the small mom-and-pop companies that in many cases don't have the data themselves, but they buy it from one of the big companies, and then they resell it to anybody that just pays them $25 online from the privacy of their bedroom. Exactly, exactly. And a lot of people don't even know that they can go to choicepoint.com and they can get uh, their FACTA disclosures, which they can find out about their work history or their insurance history. Now, ChoicePoint actually allows you to get your whole uh, public database for free, but I think people should even be able to get their criminal background for free because we get so many people calling us that are victims of criminal identity theft, and it's often very hard for them to even find out that this is happening. And, yeah, absolutely. I, yeah. I, I think the basic principle is that any information that, that can be used to determine whether you're qualified for anything, uh, you ought to be able to see and you ought to be able to insist that it be reinvestigated if it's not accurate. Yeah. You know, one of the things that I saw in your newsletter recently, I think it was the December one, talked about how during the election, the political parties exploited our credit card data. I had no idea until I read that in your newsletter. Why don't you tell us about that? I will, but I'll have to warn you and others that I have to backtrack a little bit from it. I had a hard time getting a hold of uh, the actual technology people who do what was claimed, and uh, it was only after the newsletter was printed that I got access to them, and I will have their elaboration in my January issue. And by the way, people can uh, go to our website, and we'll send them a free sample copy and a list of all of our books, and uh, we'd be happy to, to have them uh, just take a look at the newsletter, and we hope they'll subscribe. But anyway, I, I wrote uh, after the election, Howard Dean, who's chair of the Democratic Party, was really bragging that uh, his party had caught up with the Republicans, and 
uh, in massaging uh, demographic information about people to try to identify those who are leaning to vote for the, their candidates. And he made the statement that we now can tell uh, from your credit card information uh, uh, how you're likely to vote, more so than even your voter registration on file with the state. And I found that quite shocking. Um, and I tried to track it down a little more. And uh, I thought that it was a little bit exaggerated. And it turns out that it is, that they are, in fact, using the demographic information that all the other direct marketers use. Uh, and it's generally based on uh, home ownership and automobile ownership and magazine subscriptions and family size and uh, the predominant ethnic group and religious group in, in your uh, nine-digit zip code, that sort of data. And uh, the, the, both the Democrats and Republicans are claiming with that information uh, they can uh, tell how you're leaning to vote. And, of course, the idea of the game now in politics is not so much to persuade the opposition to come to your side, but just to identify those people who are leaning your way and then make sure they get out to the polls. Right. And I was interested that Howard Dean and uh, more so the technology people I talked to since then are very pleased with the fact that they now have handheld devices that give them access to all that data. So as they're walking up the steps uh, to your house before they ring the doorbell, they can simply retrieve right in the palm of their hand all the demographic stuff telling, uh, you know, well, what what your likelihood is of being a, uh, a Democratic voter and, and uh, your home ownership and your job and your ethnic group and your religious group. It's pretty amazing. It's a huge, huge advantage to that person who knocks on the door to try to solicit your vote. It's so insidious, though. Yeah. I mean, it's it's very discomforting, I think. Well, it's anti-democratic in many ways, you know. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Now, you've done research on state laws that protect privacy. Which are the top 10 states with regard to protecting privacy? Yeah, I think we will update that probably in January. Every year we publish uh, a directory of all the laws uh, on privacy, and there are a whole lot. In your state, probably, uh, well, the typical state, there'll be anywhere from 30 to 40 laws that consumers really have to know about. You don't find privacy listed in one page on, in the law books. And uh, so we're going to update that, and we will, in the course of that, update our rankings. Uh, last time we ranked them, we put California right at the top. And I love were... to hear that. That's why I <laughs> wanted you to say it, because I love to hear that. That's our Well, they state. deserve it. They deserve <laughs> it, and they have, they have grown uh, ahead uh, since then as well with the they were the first state in the nation to have a security breach law, as you know, which yes. requires companies to notify each one of us if uh, our information has been lost in a laptop or or stolen or, or otherwise Acquired by a non-authorized person, right. Yep. right. Very important to know because then you can take precautions against identity theft. And after California did this, uh, there were about 40 states, I believe, that, that followed suit after that. There is no federal law, so you're relying on state law, and it's extremely important innovation by, by uh, uh, the state of California. There, there are laws in every other aspect of privacy, whether it's financial or medical, identity theft, credit, school records, uh, electronic surveillance. Health care records? Health care records, very, mm -hmm. very strong. They're the strongest in the nation. Minnesota is second. They've got a strong tradition of privacy in, in that state. Uh, some of the other leaders include Pennsylvania and New York, Massachusetts, Rhode Island, Oregon, Washington State. And I think the state that's improved the most uh, since we did our last rankings would be the state of uh, New Hampshire. Hmm. 
And Wisconsin also is pretty is getting up there too. I know that they are the second state to have an office of privacy protection. Oh, that's right. They they followed suit after California created one. So uh, Wisconsin also, I think, has a kind of a forward looking attitude about privacy as well. They do. It's part uh, of their progressive tradition. And uh, as in California, Minnesota, uh, Wisconsin, you had all it takes is one really, but you get one representative who is responsive to. When people's pleas, when a problem arises, they're willing to put in the hard work, and uh, maybe it takes a year or two, but they get these laws passed. I know. We've been really lucky lately to have Joe Simidian, who um, has really done a lot with RFID legislation, and he was the one who originally introduced the um, the security breach notification law. So the problem is, is we have these term limits, and he's not going to be around for too much longer. So. Yeah, he's he's been a real privacy hero. Yes, and two others have been Deborah Bowen, who moved. Oh yes, up to Secretary the of State. Secretary of State, and love and, her. And Jackie Spears, who yes. has now moved into Congress. Yeah, we're lucky that we've got her in Congress. Right. Yeah, yeah, she was the financial privacy lady here. So. Oh, that's right. Yeah, yeah. we've been we've been real lucky. So you should be proud to be working in. Uh, California with the legislature, it's it's an excellent record on privacy. Yeah, so those of us who are listening here, be glad you live in California if you're driving by. This is a great place to be. And the Supreme Court of California, I think, has been very progressive on privacy. Yes, and we've recently, it's we'll see all the interesting things that have happened with our uh, gay marriage issues have been really, um, you know, interesting here as well. Right, and surely that's a privacy issue as well. It, it definitely is. Uh, yeah. We talked to a lot of people about that. So um, what do you see when we were just talking about the security breach notification law? What do you see as the successes or the failures of that breach noti- uh, uh, security breach notifications? What do you think? I mean, I, well, we've talked about some of the successes, but what are some of the things that worry you about that? Yeah, nothing's ever easy. Uh, <laughs> you know, California passed a law that's probably 50 or 60 words in length, and it seems so simple. Just notify people if their records were compromised and breached, uh, unless unless it's encrypted. That was the that was the right. that was the carrot. Right. Uh, well, then as other states get into it, you discovered that maybe it just alarmed people, and maybe you'd notify a million people when the information being breached was uh, just their name, their name and middle initial. You know, and yeah. so you had to refine it some way. You had to make sure the information was significant, and uh, you had to make sure the notification was really made only if there was something they could do about it. Um, and uh, y- you had to make sure that, uh, uh, the w- that the notification wasn't overly expensive and, and meaningless, and where could it be electronic, and in many cases that was found to be acceptable. So there were a lot of these things that came up that people really hadn't realized, and some of the later states have refined them rather nicely, and we've got some good language now, and we've got some experience as we do whenever states take the lead, we they're they're regarded as laboratories, and we can see what works and what what doesn't work. And I think now the language is clear, and we could have a federal law that uh, that protects us in case of security breaches. What we don't want, and you know you've dealt with this one a lot, is preemption. Uh, the federal yeah. Congress comes along, and uh, oddly, it's Republicans who have traditionally uh, supported states' rights, but they come along and pass a privacy law. And then they say this will preempt all other state laws. And uh, quite often the state laws liked, are stronger. Yeah, they've liked preemption when it was helping companies. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, uh, you know, the companies come along and say, well, we can't deal with 50 sta- different state laws. But they're 
virtually identical, and, and state, uh, companies have dealt with different laws for many, many years, not to mention different time zones. So it can be done. And it's just unfortunate in the privacy field that Congress moves in and preempts some very strong and very innovative legislation. So I hope that doesn't happen. Yeah, I'm I'm one who really believes in state rights because we've seen here in California that, but for California, we would not have a lot of the laws that we have. We would not have a lot of the protections that we have for privacy. So if you were waiting for, for Congress to do it, wouldn't have happened, you know? Yeah, and, and you mentioned the Choice Point situation. That was not a security breach, but Choice Point had carelessly sold information to uh, some uh African companies, actually, that were set up in the United States. Yeah, fraud ring. Yeah. Really shams, you know. To, they were not entitled to the information. And uh, California's law required that uh, Choice Point, uh, this company based in Georgia, notify mm-hmm. all California citizens of what had happened. And after they met with law enforcement, they figured out that it probably made sense to notify a lot of people outside of California as well. And after that, uh, other states followed suit and said, gee, if California's got a law that, in fact, was useful to our citizens, maybe we ought to have one. And that's the way it worked. And and I think one thing about that security breach notification law is it has really forced companies to take greater care with their databases. And they have learned to, you know, a lot of them are doing encryption that weren't doing encryption just because they know that's the that's the carrot that, that lets them out of having to disclose this and be embarrassed about it and, you know, spend a fortune notifying people. Right. So I think it, it has done that. I just feel like the the problem is is that we're still having so much notification and you you know, there a lot of the class action lawsuits have been thrown out. So, you know, there hasn't been a lot for consumers with regard to what do you do after you've uh, had your identity stolen or your privacy has been breached like that. So right. there there's still some things that need to be done. Uh true indeed. Slowly but surely, Canada and the European nations are following suit, and they're going to come up with security breach laws pretty soon. I know that you know a lot about uh, employee privacy in the workplace. What are some, I noticed um, on your website, you have some great guidelines for fairness for employees with regard to video monitoring and all that kind of stuff. Can you share some of those things, especially because here we are on the campus, and we're also in a in an area that is, you know, big business. So what should employees, future employees, be concerned about, and what should employers do to protect the privacy of their employees? Well, I think the first thing they ought to do is discover why they want the camera surveillance. And after 9-11, a lot of that wasn't done. Well, what's the problem? Do we have drug abuse here? Do we have uh, theft? Uh, do we have illicit sexual harassment in the workplace? What is it that we think is going on that we want to uh, stop or we want to catch. And then you aim the uh, the camera program at that. And if if no illicit activity is discovered of any kind in the film, you, you erase it. You get rid of it. Uh, what we found in many companies was that the, f- the video would end up in the bottom drawer of some male supervisor and he'd, he'd watch it and, and get titillated uh, watching women change in the changing room and, and the like. When you put surveillance in a changing room, you ought to have extreme caution and do it only as a last resort, and erase those tapes immediately if there's no uh, uh, illicit activity uh, taking place. You ought to notify employees that, in a general way that there will be camera surveillance, and you ought to, I think, discontinue the program if it turns out that there is no illicit activity going on. Why antagonize people? 
I think there is a school of thought, I happen to subscribe to it, that says that the, that the presence of cameras quite often motivates people to think that this is kind of a, uh, a sleazy workplace or a workplace where there's a lot of bad things going on, and so they get into a <clears throat> criminal mode as well. <clears throat> so I say um, articulate beforehand what the reason is for the surveillance, and when that reason disappears, you discontinue the surveillance. You notify people that it's going to occur. You give people the right to review the tapes if, in fact, uh, they are accused of, of something uh, because of what was discovered on the tapes. And if you really want to get fancy, you can do what they now do in Canada with the technology, which is you produce videotapes that fuzz out the images of people's faces automatically. Right. And then if there is a problem, if something bad happens, then law enforcement or other people in positions of authority can unfuzz the image and find out uh, who, who the individuals are. That seems to me to solve a big problem, and it's a good example of what's called uh, privacy-enhancing technology. Simply use the technology to obscure the identities of people involved in videotapes that is totally innocent, and then you can fill in the images, get rid of the uh, blocking, uh, if in fact there has been a problem that was picked up on the tape. I think that's a great idea. You know, here on the campus, um, in we have 24 hours that we have KUCI going on of the radio shows, and we there are surveillance cameras inside and outside the studio, and you know we have a lot of expensive equipment here. So, but the good news is is that it, it's transparent. Everybody knows it's there. You can see the cameras. They're not hidden cameras. Everybody knows it. And there have been times where there's been a couple DJs who unfortunately were drinking when they shouldn't have been drinking in the middle of the night and doing things that they shouldn't have been doing, and they were caught. Um, but I like your idea of fuzzing out the faces yeah. uh, until you see something wrong. Because, I mean, we're on you know, we're on camera all the time when we're on our show. Right. But, um, but we know it. And so, you know, we don't intend to do anything that's, that you're not supposed to do. But I think the fuzzing of the faces gives a little bit of anonymity and some, some privacy back, right? Yes, it does. Another thing the federal government could do is sponsor a, an objective study on whether the cameras have deterred bad activity or not. You know, you've been a privacy advocate for a long time, and you've gathered people together. I was so thrilled to be a part of your privacy group out in Providence. What is it from from your uh, organization and all of the networking that you do with privacy advocates, what is it that privacy advocates really want in our society? If you had some ways of giving us some guidelines, what do privacy advocates really want for our society? Well, I think privacy advocates probably are quite diverse in, in the way they would project that. Many are worried more about the sanctity of the telephone and the Internet. Others worry about the sanctity of medical records. Still others are worried about abuses in the workplace. My view is that we should try to create a society where we have the most respect for individual liberties and the development of each individual uh, to their best potential. And you can't do that if you think you're constantly being watched and you can't do that if you're constantly accountable with information on various data banks. And it, it demeans society, I believe, to overdo the demands for identity and the, uh, the installation of cameras and the, this, this notion that we can collect information on our, all of our population and that somehow is going to make us safer. All of that demeans us. We need meaningful security. And we need a nation, I believe, where people 
have the freedom of movement, of autonomy, to, to develop their most, best potential. I think we lose a lot in the fact that many of our people feel that they're watched and they feel cynical about their government. They feel cynical about their employers as well, that, uh, uh, that they, they have to not engage in, in risk-taking or, or intellectual uh, um, pursuits because that might go against the grain in some way. People do not perform well when they're always thinking that they're being watched. And I would like to see a society where we feel we are not always being watched, when in fact we are more alert to, uh, to threats to our security and we report it to the right authorities. But we do that because we don't have this feeling that we're always being watched, that in fact our government uh, is subservient to us, not, not the reverse. Well, you are terrific. Lloyd says that it's time for us to end. Do you believe how quickly this went? does go by quickly. Thanks uh, for your conversation. It's been very helpful. Well, you are terrific, and we want everybody to go to your website at privacyjournal.net where they can see how to sign up for your wonderful newsletter. They can see your books. They can write you emails, right? Yes. And, and they can do all sorts of things to learn more about privacy. You're terrific. Thank you so much, Robert Ellis Smith, for joining us again. Thank you. Good evening. You've been listening to KUCI 88.9 FM Irvine and KUCI.org on the net. I'm Mari Frank, your host. Join us every Wednesday from 5 to 6 p.m. right here on KUCI.org and also on 88.9 FM Irvine. Also visit our website, KUCI.org slash privacy piracy, where you can see our upcoming guests, download podcasts, listen to archived interviews, and write us about your concerns about privacy. Thank you and good evening. The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. Hi, I'm Mari Frank, host of Privacy Piracy, which airs every Wednesday from 5 to 6 p.m. here on 88.9 FM in Irvine and KUCI.org on the net. And we're welcoming back Robert Stoffel, who's the Director of Communications for the Orange County Sheriff's Department. He's been working in communications for Orange County since 1989. Thanks for joining us again. Thank you, Maury. Nice to be here. You know, last week we talked about the communications division and what they do, but tell us a little bit about the history of the communications division. Well, communications in Orange County, as far as public safety communications, actually dates back to 1934. Wow. And in 1934, the County Board of Supervisors at that time approved a one-way radio transmitter that would allow transmissions to go out to the field, but the technology wasn't there yet for someone to pick up a microphone in their patrol car and talk back to the dispatcher. So one-way transmissions is what we started with in 1934, and over the years, as technology improved, Orange County moved along with that technology. We've had what's known as an interoperable radio system for many, many years. And for most of your listeners, that may not mean anything, but what it does mean to all of us in Orange County is that we have the ability to have our first responders, our law and fire and lifeguard and public works personnel responding to a major emergency, the ability to use one radio and talk to each other and coordinate that routine day-to-day emergency or something major like a wildland fire in the Santiago area that we had last year or perhaps something even as devastating as 9-11. 
What's unique about Orange County is that for many years we've had an interoperable system in place. Unfortunately, you read about some of these major disasters around the country. They did not have a communication system as such and had difficulty in coordinating that response. Well, that makes us a lot safer. Absolutely. Tell us more about the different services you provide for the sheriff in the county. You know, one thing that might be of interest to your listeners is we have a volunteer group of amateur radio operators. These are folks that use ham radios. And we have a group called the Radio Amateur Civil Emergency Service, called Hmm. RACES for short. That's anybody that's got a ham license and they'd like to to provide a service to the public and to the public safety community. They can use their amateur radio equipment, and we use those folks in emergencies and disasters to help uh, provide communication services above and beyond what our day-to-day systems provide. And if you have someone out there that thinks they might be interested in that, they can go to our website, which is www.ocraces which is short for O.C. Races. So www.ocraces.org, and they can learn more about the Races program. Well, terrific. We appreciate all the great work that you're doing and keeping in communication to keep us safe. Thank you very much. So thank you, Robert. We'll take care. Thanks.